Welcome, welcome, welcome to Above Replacement Radio. I am your host, Chris Gianta. I might be becoming a bad baseball fan who can't enjoy the romantic things because of advanced statistics. 15 years from now, I want to be on the early baseball committee. Over there on the other side of the screen is Daniel Kern. I literally have the fan graphs hoodie, the baseball reference t-shirt, just repping some stats, you know what I'm saying? It's not necessarily Hall of Fame. It's not necessarily above average, but we can guarantee you we are better than just the standard replacement level college sophomore. And welcome to Above Replacement Radio, where we're talking baseball kind of whenever. I'm your host, Chris Giannis. Over there on the other side of the screen is Daniel Curran. How you doing, Daniel? Chris, I'm doing very well today. It is August 22nd. Uh, we're, you know, very much into the dog days of summer, but September's coming soon. Pennant races are heating up. Wild card races are heating up. And we got a guest today to talk about one of the teams that are kind of in the fringe of that wild card race. Yes, absolutely. It's uh, it's going to be an, it's an absolute pleasure that we've had uh, Chris Cotillo on. I mean, as of recording this, we haven't yet had the interview, but we will uh, we will be getting into it uh, later on. But yeah, it's it's a pleasure. I mean, the guy has been, you know, Chris Cotillo, if you don't know, he uh, has been the Red Sox beat right one of the Red Sox beat writers for Mass Live since May of 2018. So he's really seen he's really seen the gamut. He's seen the World Series. He's seen the fallout since the World Series, the Dombrowski firing, the the Heimblum uh hiring, the Alex Cora removal, and then going back into into charge. Like he's he's seen a lot with the Red Sox organization as a beat writer. And just so, in a such a short time, too. Right. I mean, we've seen the organization go from full buy all the time to kind of a more, you know, nuanced approach to things, whether it be good or bad, sometimes good, sometimes bad, yeah. um, which is, which is uh, very intriguing. And I'm really excited to see what his thoughts are on all of this. Um, and yeah, de- definitely. And one of the best guys out there too, very accessible um, and always uh, interacts well with the, uh, with the fans and observers of the Red Sox. Um so yeah, so without further ado, here's that interview with Chris Cotillo. So for the interview, I'm going to be looking like this, uh, def- different angle than you're used to, but that is because in the middle of Daniel's uh, preview of the week, yeah, preview of the week ahead with starting pitching matchups, my power just went out for no reason. Uh, I know there's a hurricane, but that is 3,000 miles away from me. Uh, maybe I got uh, a little bit of the effect there, but... I think what really happened is maybe a car just crashed into uh, a power pole, you know, something carrying power lines uh, nearby. But that is why I'm on my phone. My audio might be a little off in the interview. So now get it. we're into the interview with Chris Cotillo. All right, and we are happy to be joined by Red Sox beat writer for Mass Live, Chris Cotillo. Chris, it's it's been quite a long time coming, and we're finally here. So, how's it going? It's good, guys. How are you? Good to see you both. We're doing well. So, you've been covering the Red Sox. This is what your sixth season now. Yeah, I started in the middle of 2018. So that year, I don't know if that year counts because like they didn't lose any games that I covered. They just kept <laughs> winning the whole time. And so yeah. this is, uh, and then 2020 we could throw out. So it's somewhere between four and six seasons. Yeah. Fair enough. Yeah. So um, what have been the biggest similarities and differences between uh, when you started covering the Red Sox and now? Obviously, you've seen a lot of turnover in uh, the front office, you know, the manager, and certainly the on-field product. So what have been the biggest differences for you? For me, it's um, when I went in there, it was a lot of very established players who had been there for a while, and they had you know, from a beat perspective, they had relationships with a lot of the reporters who had already been there. You know, the clubhouse I walked into was full of superstars, whether it be, you know, Mookie or Bogarts, JD, Kimbrell was in there, Sale, and Porcello had a Cy Young, Price had a Cy Young. Like, it was a lot of very, very, very accomplished guys. Um, and a lot of star power, I think, and, and Dombrowski and, and um, Cora's first year. Now, um, you know, it's not a bad team, but it just doesn't have the star power. You know, there's there's kind of that emerging core um, because, you know, call it what you will over the last few years, they've been trying to rebuild. They haven't rebuilt where they've purposefully been absolutely horrible. A couple of years they have been, you know, accidentally horrible in 2020 and 2022. But, um, you know, this it's, it's kind of guys now who are trying to make their way into the majors, establish themselves as part of the young core. Back then it was a lot of big-time stars. 
Um, and so Chris Smith, my partner in Mass Live, and I were talking a lot heading into this season about, you know, who is the best, who's the second best player on the Red Sox behind Devers. Um, and there's, you know, guys who have stepped up and might be Yoshida, it might be Turner, it might be, you know, Sale when he's healthy or, or all these different guys. But that was a question heading into the year. And, and back a few years ago, that wouldn't have been the case. So um, I think the biggest difference is, is that and then just kind of how Bloom approaches things versus how Dombrowski approaches things. They couldn't really be more different in style. You know, Dombrowski said, screw the prospects. I want to win right now. And, and Heim has more of that long term view. And I think in today's game, um, you know, both work, I think, in, in a place that's as impatient as Boston. Um, it, it's a tough kind of hill for Heim to try to uh, climb and eventually potentially die on if it doesn't work. But um, I think we're seeing the fruits of his labor now. So um, it is, you know, we kind of um, it's been an interesting lesson on how much can happen for an organization in five, six years, too. You know, if you think back. You know, again, I started like Memorial Day in 2018. So they won the World Series. They didn't lose a game. 2019 happens. They are middling. And then Dombrowski gets fired. That's a huge piece of news. After the season, the Cora scandal, he gets fired. They trade Mookie. There's a COVID season. Cora comes back. 21, another surprise playoff run. Big moves last year. You know, a big signing with Story. You know, Bogarts leaves. Um, the Devers extension, like there's been a lot of very newsworthy days and moments. Um, I've kind of seen it all, I think, which has been cool to be in this position for all that. Um, and, and also just the turnover, right? Like there's only Devers and Sale um, are left who were there when I first started on the job. So it's been a lot of change, but it's been a lot of fun too. Right. And, uh, and one of the things you mentioned is the kind of the opposite approaches of Dave Dombrowski, the former president of baseball ops and, uh Heim Bloom is currently the chief baseball officer over there. Um, but also I think there's been a large difference in how ownership has approached uh, you know, tackling this baseball team. They've gone from a top three payroll before, you know, they fired Dombrowski to according to Spot Track right now, they have the 13th highest payroll in baseball, which is unusual for the Red Sox. So how much do you think it has to do with a factor of um of front office and how much do you ha- does it have to do with uh, ownership? Yeah, I mean, uh, part of that is you know, Devers' deal doesn't really kick in and get to the thirty million range ne- until next year, and so it's about to get um, about to go higher. And I do think they're going to you know add a big time free agent or two, and that's going to go back up. Um, you know, I think part of it too is just that <clears throat> we've seen that the the big payroll teams are not as rewarded as they used to be. You know, whether it be, you know, the Mets or Padres or Yankees this year, it's not, or, you know, the Angels a lot of years, it's not really the only way to build a team. And we've seen, you know, kind of the smarter, lower payroll teams do better, which, you know, does give um, teams an opportunity to be uh, somewhat, um, I don't know, give them an excuse to potentially be cheaper, I guess. Um, it's As I've said for years now, it's tough to really, really put your um, finger on how attentive ownership is when we are not around to see them on a daily basis. I mean, I'm around. They're not around to talk to us. So um, John Henry hasn't addressed the media in a formal setting since the Mookie trade. Tom Warner, barely. He did it after the Devers contract. Sam Kennedy hasn't really been around Fenway this year. So you know, I know they're involved. It's just kind of tough to to see it kind of play out on a daily basis because you don't know. Um, I don't think Heim's default is to be cheap. He just hasn't found that, you know, um, those opportunities to be the smartest ones so far. Like he gave out the biggest deal in Red Sox history to guy in Endeavors and signed Story for 140 million and you know, gave Whitlock an extension. I know that was, you know, smaller money relatively, but He's shown his willingness to spend, and I think, you know, the real competitive window starts next year. If he doesn't go and spend on, you know, whether it be Blake Snell or Nola or one of those types of guys or two of those types of guys, I think it'll be, you know, disappointing. But if you look at, you know, the money he did spend last offseason, whether it be for, you know, Devers and that extension, Yoshida was a big deal, Jansen $16 million a year, you know, Martin almost $10 million a year. He did go out and, and try to, you know, add a lot of pieces to try to make this team Turner, you know, $15, 16000000 million for the season. So, um, 13th is, is not, you know, where they used to be, but, um, I don't think that they're afraid of spending money. And again, that, that Devers deal, that's the biggest in franchise history. So they just did that. And, um, you know, who knows how well it's going to age. We're talking on a day after he made, you know, more defensive miscues in the field. And, uh, looks like he's going to have to be moved off that position sooner rather than later, but, um, he can mash and they're counting on that for really a decade to come.
Yeah. And that and, you know, his youth, he's what, like 25, 26 right now. And that yep. deal won't end until he's 36 years old. So there's the benefit of that. One thing that you kind of talked about, you touched on earlier was, you know, throwing out the 2020 season, but like it did happen. So I'm very curious from a beat writer's perspective, what was it like covering baseball in that year? Yeah. I mean, um, I think the rest of the world wanted to be at baseball games that summer. Mm-hmm. Uh, seeing the empty stadiums and on, on TV and as somebody who was there, I didn't want to be there. It was very depressing, you know, like I was sitting in the press box. There's probably less than a hundred people in the building other than the players. Um, it look, I've, I've said this time and time again to everybody who's ever asked. It seemed like just like a summer long fever dream, you know, um, just being there for games in an empty stadium with the crowd noise and the cutouts in the seats and just kind of weird stuff. We didn't travel at all. Uh, so they played 60 games total, 30 at home, obviously. And then we had to split that up um, because they only let one person per outlet in uh, on a daily basis. And uh, to me, that was, um, that was, you know, that was only me half the time. So I did probably 14, 15 games. It was really strange. Um, we were zooming the players who were in the same building as us. They were downstairs. We had no access to them. I lived right near Fenway at the time. There was literally zero point to go into the ballpark. You know, like we could go to the games. It was an excuse to get out of the apartment while everything else was closed, but you didn't get any, you didn't get anything from going. And, um, it was depressing. Um, I remember tweeting at the end of that season, a kind of a picture of Fenway. I said, you know, next time I hear, I hope a lot more of you are with me. Um, and that was 12% for the beginning of 2021. And then it quickly amped up back to hundred percent within a couple months, but it was weird. Um, you know, the Red Sox were also wretched. I mean, they were throwing out guys on a daily basis who I had never heard of, you know, like literally guys that I had not heard of who were making starts for them. Um, and, you know, the whole Renneke thing, and he was a good guy put in a horrible spot, but they were, uh, it got the Marcelo Meyer. So I think if, and when the history of the organization is written, it'll be a successful season just based on that, but yeah. tough to watch on a daily basis. Yeah. Shout out to uh, Josh Osich, uh, former Red Sox starter. The only, only could happen in 2020. Um, but yeah, uh, that was a really interesting year. And I think going going into the, you know, front office differences from, you know, before, before Bloom to after to during Bloom, um, you know, the last, the last couple of trade deadlines, you know, with trade deadlines generally, it's pretty clear what an organization's direction is, but that's kind of failed to be the case with the, with the Red Sox, the past couple, what has it been like uh, covering these trade deadlines and kind of being maybe surprised at, at, the action or lack of action with the, uh, with the Red Sox. Yeah. I mean, you know, I think the biggest thing that, um, you know, this deadline taught us is that, you know, just more confirmation that Heimblum is going to be extremely principled and extremely, you know, stuck in his ways in a way where like, if he doesn't feel like the right deals on the table, he's not going to force it, you know, and, and, you know, would you have given up Sedan Raffaella for Aaron Savali? Probably not, right? And that's kind of like what was on the table for them. And I think that he just looks at it and says, look, we're just this does not make the organization better. You know, a guy like Dave Dombrowski would say, it probably makes the Major League team better this second, and maybe he'd do it. But Dombr- I mean, uh, Bloom's never going to do that type of move. And um, I think some of the stuff that we've seen this year, whether it be the rise of Casas or Wong or Duran or Cutter Crawford or Bayo or all these guys who are kind of emerging as that young core, you know, are going to let Heim see this through. So, you know, different different deadlines for sure. His first one in 20 was kind of an all-out sale. And if you look at that and who they gave up, they gave up a bunch of bit parts. Moreland at the end of his career, Kevin Pillar, um, Hembry and Workman, who are horrendous for, their, for the Phillies down the stretch and basically, you know, haven't really pitched since. They got Nick Pavetta as kind of the only piece out of the, all those guys that ended up working out, and he's worked out and been an important piece of the team for, you know, I know he's been horrible at times, but he's been very good down the stretch here. He's big in 21. Um, so over the course of really three seasons now has been important. So that trade deadline is a win for them. 2021, um, Schwarber was really a game changer down the stretch. That's a win. Last year's deadline, I think, was the one that stands out as the bad one. You know, they, they really screwed themselves by trading Vasquez and not really getting any good players, um, you know, in terms of the guys they added to the major league roster. Hosmer barely played for them. Fam was below average. You know, McGuire's an okay backup catcher, but, uh, 
a lot riding on Willier Abreu, who makes his debut today, coming up, and Emmanuel Valdez, who they got in that Vasquez trade, considering how angry the clubhouse was. And then this year, you know, um, it was tough, I think, for fans were really excited about the possibilities of doing something one way or another, and the fact he basically did nothing. Um, you know, again, I understand the rationale. The prices were too high to add, and he didn't want to completely give up. They were stuck in a – that's when you're mediocre, you're stuck in those situations. So, um you know, the story of this deadline, you know, won't be told until we see what they do in the offseason. Like, he's going to be aggressive at some point. He was with Yoshida. He was with Devers over the last winter. And I think, you know, big-time spending really needs to start um, this winter. And um, if he's able to do that and he kept all the prospects, kind of that core intact by not doing much of the deadline, then I think that makes a lot of sense. But um, it was weird. You know, it was kind of once that day started, we were in Seattle, like, when are they going to do something? They have to do something, right? They have to. And then, and then they didn't accept, you know, get grand slam specialist, Luis Urias. So, um, that's it's inaction is, is kind of the default sometimes. Um, I don't think that can be the case for much longer. Right. And, uh, and with that, like, you know, th- there were a lot of different conversations being had. I, ma- I imagine a lot of be- different players being discussed, uh, in this most recent tr- trade deadline and something that intrigued me and I was kind of curious as to what the conversations were like was with James Paxton particularly because I think with the Dodgers um, they had, there were reports that they had shown interest in James Paxton after Eduardo Rodriguez decided not to go there via his no trade clause so I'm wondering if like how serious were the talks to for the Red Sox to move tr- James Paxton and um, you know obviously the price wasn't didn't fit the mold, but how serious were the talks uh, with that potential trade? I've never really gotten a sense of that. I think that the Dodgers probably spent so much time on the Erod deal to the point where it got agreed to um, that they probably were just scrambling toward the end of the day, and you know were um, kind of throwing out last minute offers. And you know, I've always said the Red Sox in the front office, the way they operate right now, does not really do particularly well with the deadline they're very kind of measured you know planning um let's take the step by step make sure we're making a sound decision group and when there's a deadline you get an offer thrown at you with two minutes to spare they're not the type of team that's just going to say yeah screw it we'll do it like Dombrowski was um and so that's kind of what I assume happened behind the scenes on something like Paxton um you know I hindsight 2020 almost a month later right like they probably should have moved off of him because he's showing signs of of being rusty. And if you could get a prospect, a pretty good prospect, like the white Sox cut for Giolito, maybe you do that deal. Um, but it's just, I think Heim was a little bit afraid too, of the clubhouse um, thinking that they were giving up for a second straight year because they were super deflated after they moved Vasquez last year. It just, you know, everything kind of fell apart quickly. And I, I don't think you wanted to risk that happening again. Yeah. I mean, it was certainly an interesting deadline and, you know, Luis Arias, obviously he's done well, but he was kind of the one guy brought in. Was there a similar uh, kind of notion in the clubhouse this year with not a lot done? Or was it kind of just like, okay, no one's gone, so that's a good thing? Yeah, I mean, I think it kind of goes either way. Um, you know, there, I think there was some relief that nobody got traded from the Major League roster, but um, there's also kind of a... Um, feeling like they they could have added more you know and uh that was i think the the part there are some veterans that are pretty vocal about wanting to add you know rafael devers uh had said that um kind of on the record to the globe a couple weeks before um or a couple days before saying we need pitching and it's just uh they didn't do that i think that might be frustrating at the same time you know they they were happy that paxton and duval and those guys stayed and i think the red sox did have and it's an excuse they use, but a good built-in excuse, too, of getting sales, story, Whitlock, and Houck back. You know, like, those guys, oh, they're better than anybody you can get at the trade deadline. Yeah, probably. I mean, you know, story's been horrendous so far, and sale, you know, up and down his two outings, and, and Whitlock very up and down. Houck comes back tonight. Um, but, like, their roster is a good roster right now. You know, like, it's a, is it too late? Probably. Are they facing too many good teams down the stretch? Probably. Um but it's a good roster, and, and, you know, it's they have kind of a, a competitive pitcher going out there, you know, every night starting-wise now. You know, like you have Sale, who's still shown that ceiling. Bayo, obviously, Crawford's had a very underrated year, is a good guy. You know, Paxton, last night notwithstanding, has been good. 
Um, they, they think Houck's going to be better than he was early in the season. Pavetta on his days, Chris Murphy's getting optioned today, but he's been pretty good. Um, and then the bullpen, you know, from Jansen backwards, Jansen, Martin, Schreiber, Winkowski, um, Whitlock, like they have a very good staff, right? And like, if you had another guy, there probably wouldn't be room for him. They have to send Chris Murphy down today, you know? So like, um, is it too late? Maybe. Um, but that's, uh, they're just, the injuries piled up at a bad time and they were getting all these guys back kind of around now. And they knew that. And, uh, it's 20, 21, 22 days later, three weeks since the trade deadline. Um, could they have won a couple more ball games in the last three weeks? If they had added rich Hill, who knows, you know? So, um, they just determined ultimately that the price was not worth it. And, um, that's, that's something Heim has determined a lot of times over his course of time here. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, I think, as the off seasons pile up, so does the uh, pressure to, you know, budge, give in, you know, add, add a major piece. If you had to rate it one through 10, um, what would you say the pressure, how, how much pressure do you think the Red Sox have to make a major move this, uh, this upcoming off season? I think it's pretty high, you know, and they have made major moves now in the last couple of years. You know, as I talked about, it wasn't just, you know, story a couple of years ago, but also Yoshida, Jansen, the Devers extension is huge. Um, I think that the window to really contend starts now. You know, they if you look at who's a free agent after the year, it's not, you know, the superstars we've seen in years past. I mean, last year, Evaldi, Bogarts, J.D., you know, Hill and Waka and all these guys that were huge, huge pieces. Vasquez was going to be. Um, that's why everybody called it senior year, right? Like that's the year everybody's kind of heading out at the same time. This year it's Paxton, who's nice but older and a bit piece. Duval, who is nice but older and a bit piece. And Jansen, who is, I mean, at Turner, who has been really, really good, but is 38. And I think they'll probably make every effort to re-sign him. Um, so you have like pretty much everybody coming back. Uh, who is really part of your core moving forward. You know, your bullpen is stacked already. All those guys I just mentioned, Jansen and Martin are under control for next year. Winkowski, Schreiber, and Whitlock for many years to come. If you want to throw Hauk into that mix, he is too. Bayo and Crawford, you have five, six more years of them. You have Sale for another year next year. You have Pavetta for another year. Verdugo, I think they're probably going to trade him, but he's under control for another year. Duran for a while. Rafaela, you know, right on the verge. Casas for a while. Urias and Reyes, Wong, Maguire, these guys are all like not going to be free agents for a bit. Um, you know, minus really kind of Verdugo and Turner and some of those guys I mentioned. So it's now about supplementing that. And I think going out and getting a number two starter or a number one type of guy, you know, whether you go out and sign Blake Snell or you sign um, maybe somebody like uh, Aaron Nola, um, Yamamoto, you know, there's like a lot of options there where, you know, you could go out and get a big time name. There's also, I think, the possibility of a trade where this would kind of hurt Heimblum more because he's always more willing to spend money than spend prospect capital, especially if you have to give up, you know, a Meyer or a Roman Anthony or a Rafaela or somebody in that mold. Look towards Seattle, Logan Gilbert, George Kirby. Look at Pittsburgh, Mitch Keller. Look at, you know, the White Sox with Cease. You know, those are the types of guys that could be available. Milwaukee Corbin Burns. Yep, yep. I mean, there's a lot of guys who are out there. Um who knows if he's willing to do that. I think he'd be more likely to just sign, you know, maybe Snell and Nola and have a stacked rotation. And, um, but you give up draft picks for, for some of those guys too. So um, they need to add there. I think the rest of the, the roster, you know, the bullpen, like I said, is really, really good. And they have, you know, three guys there and Winkowski, Schreiber and Whitlock, who are going to be probably, you know, relievers for them for a long time and be good. Bernardino is a guy that's come out of nowhere and probably you know, has a roster spot for a few years. Murphy, Walter, um, but they don't have that pitching pipeline of top starting pitching prospects who are close to the majors right now. All those guys kind of burned. They burned through those guys in the last couple of years where, you know, uh, has not been good at AAA. Walter's a reliever now. Murphy's a reliever now. Mata's been hurt. Uh, Seabold's not with the organization. Winkowski's a reliever. Like, they've gotten Crawford and Bayo up, but the rest of them, you know, there's not much in t- terms of AAA, AA talent right now. So, I'd say that's kind of the big need and the pressure is pretty high. So I'll say about an eight out of 10 to, to add to the rotation and the rest of the team around it. I mean, you, you can make an argument that the position player side of things is pretty much set unless you want to go out and make a big upgrade at second base. Um, uh, the rotation really is the piece they need to add to. 
Yeah, it is a very interesting offseason to have that much pressure to add to the rotation because, you know, if you look at the options, it's, you know, Shohei Otani's in his own class, but that's just an entirely different thing that, you know, every team will be, or a lot, you know, all the, the big market teams, the Dodgers, the Mets will be very in on. And then you look at anything below and it's like Snell, who is, you know, has has doing very well this year, uh, who might, you know, ask for a lot of money. There's Nola, who's having a bit of a down year. Uh, mm-hmm. Arias Yamamoto, but you know when you look at number two quality pitcher at the very least on the free agent market, it, I think it kind of goes no further than that. So you know with a lot of pressure, I think there's not a lot of names out there, which I think adds a lot more, a lot more pressure to a team that already needs it. Yeah, well when they sign Otani, it'll all be you know it'll all be fine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yep, 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 absolutely. Yeah, when, ticket, when ticket prices go up forty percent, yeah, <clears throat> be worth it. Yeah. Um, so pivoting, pivoting away from the Red Sox for a second and, and pivoting more towards social media. One of my favorite, one of my favorite things about following Chris Cotillo on Twitter is the, uh, handling of the people who maybe, maybe should, maybe are talking too much, maybe shouldn't be speaking as loudly as they are. And even just a simple retweet of some, you know, abomination to these to the uh sense of grammar is i mean something it gives me a chuckle i mean what what has been your progression with you know dealing with people on twitter uh yeah my biggest troll is at david cotillo one my father so um (laughs) you know it just it kind of is all all downhill from there no i mean i uh i've as i've told you guys before like my i used to get really really irritated by people being nasty on Twitter. Now I laugh it off. Um, I I have a lot of different ways of, of kind of dealing with it. I just, at the end of the day, it's not that serious. It's just baseball and people get so worked up and so offended. And, you know, if the Red Sox spend money in a place that's, you know, not great, it's not your money, you know, calm down. It's fine. It's going to be okay. And I know people are passionate. That's what makes it cool. I'm not level-headed when I'm talking about the North Carolina basketball Tar Heels either. So I understand where it comes from, but um, yeah, I mean, uh, as I kind of learned throughout my career, somebody reads your work and says, this is awesome. I agree with everything you said. Somebody reads your work and says, this is the worst thing I've ever read and you suck. That's two people reading your work, right? That's two readers. It's better than zero. It's better than one. So I kind of look at it that way. Um, I do. It does get under my skin when people question the process or say you're making things up or you're not credible. I mean, you know, we work our asses off in this job to kind of be the liaison between the teams and the fans and bring credible work and all that type of stuff. When people kind of um, crap on that a little bit, it's a family show, uh, that I, I get I get irritated and sometimes I'll snap back or, you know, just try to explain things. You know, yesterday, you were, you know, and you come off as a homer sometimes, but yesterday someone was saying the Red Sox have no urgency sitting Justin Turner. How are they sitting Justin Turner today? Like, dude, the guy can't walk right now. You know, like he just played 18 innings in the field on a bruise, on a bone bruise on his heel. Like, he barely can walk. Um, they have to sit him, right? Like, he's going to be out for the rest of the year if you don't sit him tonight. So, um, that, that might be a little dramatic, but really. So, um, I, it's different ways. You know, I wish I was a little bit better at ignoring all of it all the time, but you can't be perfect. So, um, and I'm far from it. Yeah, no, that was. Uh, it is. It is. Red Sox fans, especially, are just very interesting to uh to look at on twitter and to see what comes from them especially in these recent years where there hasn't been as much of an urgency to win now yeah well i think that there's also the fact that you know they got very very spoiled very quickly you know Mm -hmm. the fans now are used to you know they've seen four championships and and from between 14 and 18 or 04 and 18 you know i mean like if it, it's championship or bust, um, I think fans who are, you know, older and, you know, get to see a lot of the curse and live through it and are very appreciative of the four titles, you know, realize that you're not going to win it every year. Um, and, but they were winning it, you know, once in that, in that stretch, once every kind of three years or so, three and a half years. So, um, it makes you think that they should do it every year. Um, but it's hard, you know, there's 30 teams going for it. I mean, how many teams have we seen, you know, not be able to, I know the Astros just won their second one, but it's not a lot of teams that have won, you know, multiple titles in, in the last 10 years or so. Um, and technically, so I, but I, yeah. technically no one's gone back to back in, in our lifetimes, in my lifetime, at least. Yeah. I mean, 
so, you know, I, as I said, uh, as a Tar Heel fan, they should be among the top five teams in the country every year. And sometimes they're just not. Sometimes it doesn't work out. And it's like it's championship or bust all the time. You really shouldn't look at it that way because there's a lot of really good teams and a lot of smart people trying to win. Um, but, you know, fans get frustrated. And I think I think part of it is that the ownership, you know, not talking and not being front front facing makes people really question, like, what's the goal here? You know, what are what are we trying to do? Uh, and I think that's fair. You know, that's why I kind of call on them over and over and over again to kind of tell us what they're thinking. And they still they won't do it. And I think fans get pretty irritated. Um, but it's uh, it's, you know, I'm trying to be patient. So I guess fans should be, too. When you say that they're called a member of the Bluminati, but there we are. Yeah. Yeah, that that does happen. That does that does indeed happen. Um, so now to get into the question that we ask every single every single guest that we uh, have on the program, it kind of it, it opens up a lot. Uh, there's a lot of different answers you could go with. Um, if you could go, you know, pre 2015, you get uh, any any player in baseball history's stat cast data, you get their percentiles, you get uh, how hard they hit the ball or threw the ball. Uh, you get all that uh, pre 2015, you get any player in baseball history. Who do you go with? Ted Williams, probably. I mean, you just kind of look at the, um, I was looking at his numbers the other day. Someone, we were one of the Red Sox PR guys and I were talking about the fact he only ever played against seven teams, which you never would think about, but it's true. I mean, I guess it makes sense in retrospect, but like, you know, not something that's top of mind. Um, just to see, you know, his dominance and what his numbers were throughout his career, to see all that stuff would be pretty cool. You want to see if he hit the if you want to, if he hit the the red seat? Yes. And did did uh, he really hit one five hundred and two feet that one day? Yeah, that's that. I would like to see that primarily. Um, he's no Rowdy Tellez. I think Statcast screwed up one day and said he hit one like five oh five at Fenway. <laughs> so uh, yeah, uh, but yeah, that would be that would be one reason, but of many to see Ted stuff. Yeah. Yeah. The, uh, yeah, it would be, that, that would be very interesting. Like, uh, seeing all the chase rate stuff, you know, I, I'm sure he didn't swing it much more than like 15% of the pitches out of the zone. Like, I think also it'd be interesting to do the Juan Soto comparison. Cause a lot of people compare Juan Soto to Ted Williams. So there's a lot of different angles to go with there. Well, um, with, with that, I think that wraps up, uh, wraps up our interview uh thank you very much for for coming on and letting us know all the all the all the red sox inside information uh or you know close to it so we appreciate you having up we appreciate having you on um and uh and yeah keep uh keep doing what you're doing thanks guys i appreciate it as always Wow, what a great interview that was. Yeah, I mean, um, outside of all the, you know, outside of him saying he's quitting tomorrow and he's gonna, um, he's gonna go into like welding. Yeah, uh, I think I think that that kind of threw me off. But yeah, other than that, I think we we got a lot of good information. It was crazy what he said about um, how they're gonna hire Tony La Russa at the end of the season. Yeah, I couldn't believe that they're gonna rehire him actually. Yeah, right, right. Yeah, they're gonna. They did used to have him. They're gonna take him out of the front office and put him as an on-field manager, which is uh really really interesting. Mm -hmm. Um, so, so yeah, uh, definitely good stuff there. Um, but yeah, and now we will get into. There's not really many topics to talk about here. You know, we we it's been only a few days since, since we uh were on the airwaves. Uh, but one thing one thing did strike me and and. Every once in a while, we'll have our own personal rants. Sometimes Daniel goes off. Sometimes I go off. And, you know, this is partially just observational for me. Um, and it has to do with Gunnar Henderson's performance on Sunday, I believe. I think it was Sunday, yeah. Yeah, Sunday against the Oakland A's. Um, he is, three, I think, three for three or three for four with a double, triple, and home run and he's coming up for another at bat. He hits a sharp ground ball down the right field line. Uh, it, it It's obvious he's going to get two and he, you know, forbades the, or, you know, passes up on the chance for a, for a cycle and he goes and gets the double. 
you know, all the Twitter responses, all the all the easy things to say are like, oh, you should have stopped it first. Or like, I would have faked an injury and, and stopped it first. It's a 10-1 ball game. Let's get that cycle. And for he me, just intentionally trips over himself. That would have been really funny. Like Francisco Lindor on his first hit. Yeah. 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 Absolutely. So, but it it it's kind of goes back to the thing for me of like how cycles are kind of a weird in-game accomplishment to celebrate. I think just the reason we celebrate it is because it's cool. It's sort of like baseball bingo. And also shout out to the person who first introduced me to this take was actually someone I I think his t- most of his takes are bad, but it's Tony Maserati from Felger and Maz on uh, 98.5 The Sports Hub. But it was back in like 2015. I think Brock Holt or yeah, Brock Holt had, had hit for the cycle. So he had and... to spin it into a negative take against it, right? Yes, yes, yes. Yeah. Um, but he brought up a good point with this is in that it's it's baseball bingo. Like a, a four homer game is obviously way more impressive, but also, you know, what what Gunnar Henderson did technically for sure is more impressive than a cycle, which is two doubles, a triple and a home run as opposed to single double, triple home run. And I'm not knocking cycles completely. It's overall a very impressive um, offensive day. Cause if you go four for four with a cycle, that's a 3,500 OPS on the day. So, I mean, that's just incredible to incredible to see. Um, I've personally seen a cycle in person um, and that was really cool to see. However, this leads into my next point. Cycles are only cool if they end on a triple and a home triple or a home run. Um, like if you end on a single, it's just kind of like, yeah, especially like if you intentionally get the single, if you could have gotten more, I think that just it's it, it defeats the purpose of the coolness of the cycle. There's a moment the, the there's a moment with the cycle that makes it really cool. Was 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 Benji Molina's uh, cycle? Did that end on a triple or was that just part I'm pretty of sure it? it did. Yeah. Yeah. So like that moment, you you it's just not the same if it's ending on a single or even like a stand up double. It's just not the same. Same thing with uh the cycle I viewed in person. Uh Mookie Betts. Uh, oh Mookie right, Betts. the Mookie Betts one. Yeah, in in uh in Toronto against yeah, against the Blue Jays in the Rogers Center. Uh he had a triple double and single, you know, on the books already. It was the ninth inning, albeit they were down by four, and he slams a home run into right or slams a home run into left field and it was really really cool because it ended on a home run but if he already had the home run double and uh and triple and he like smacked one in the gap and just stopped at first base you'd be like ah well all right but there's there's it's anticlimactic if it ends on a single um and and the last thing i'll say is what does it say about a single game accomplishment if you might have to compromise your performance to complete it like that's just there's there's nothing there's there's no there's there's no other single game accomplishment that's like that there's no like no hitter you have to allow no hits uh you know perfect game you have to have to allow uh no base runners Mm -hmm. i guess potentially with a no hitter you could take an easy way out and like walk somebody but that's never really the case so like i don't know that's 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 my thing with cycles so I'll give my take on the Gunnar Henderson thing. Uh, I I would have had no problem if he, if he stopped at first. Like, I get it. It would have been a little selfish. But, like, they were already up 10-1. to 1. It didn't really mean anything. If they were up, like, 3-2 to 2 or down 3-2, to 2, then, yeah, it would have been something a lot different. Especially because, like, if you get the cycle in a game, that only guarantees you one run for your team. Yeah. You can hit, you can hit a triple and get stranded. You can hit a double and get stranded. Obviously, if you had a home run, that's a run no matter what. But uh, yeah, I mean, the, hitting for the cycle only guarantees you one run. So it's very possible to hit for the cycle and still have a relatively unproductive game as a team. As you saw in Toronto there, Chris, the Red Sox, I think only scored like four runs that game, right? Yeah, yeah, they lost uh, eight to five, I believe. Eight to five. Yeah, close enough. So, I mean, a lot of the times the cycle happens in a blowout game because guys get like four or five or five or six plate appearances or whatever. Um, that was the case here. Uh, if Gunnar Henderson stopped it first, I wouldn't have cared, like I said, because it was already 10 to 1 anyway. Like, it doesn't really make that much of a difference. And he's like a young guy. My favorite thing that's come out of this, though, from what I've seen on Twitter, uh, the I've only seen one person that's ever stopped it first to get the cycle. And it was Jeff Fry. And I don't know if you're familiar with Jeff Fry on Twitter, but he is the most whiny, 
old school guy that I've ever seen. And it's so against everything that he's ever tweeted about. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's wild. That's wild. Yeah. I, yeah. I'm not that familiar with it, but I feel like I've heard him and, and potentially bad takes. He got, he went super viral, like a couple weeks ago because there was, I don't know if you saw this, Chris, but there was a video of Manny Ramirez's son, like bad flipping on a home run in whatever, like summer league he was playing in. And he, and he said, like, I played with his dad and I never saw him do this. It's like, did you close your eyes every time Manny Ramirez was hitting? Because he absolutely did this. Like, his most famous career moment was him doing that, actually. Yeah, that is crazy. That is perfect that he was the one dude to do that. Yeah. Because, yeah, you it, know, it, while video was available. Yeah. I mean, I, I can't imagine anyone did it in, like, the 70s. It feels like a very lame thing to have done back then. Right, right. Yeah, no, like, that seems. It seems like a very unwritten rule police type thing. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. It's it kind of which is weird is... because it, it's weird because I mean, this is just me making something up. But like, I feel like if someone did that today, it would be frowned upon by like the opposing manager and stuff. But it's like, actually, he's, he's helping your team. Like you right. have a double, you have a double play chance now because he stopped at first. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And it's like and you can't say it's poor sportsmanship if he's up yeah. like 10 if he's up like 10 to 1. But it also feels like it would be because it's like you yeah, think about it in like Little League, like if you're winning or losing by so much, you get to a point where it's like if there's a pass ball, you just don't advance another base. Yeah. Like you well, get to that point, right? Well, remember, Chris Woodward wanted that with the Fernando oh, yeah, Tatis he did Jr. thing. That. He did. Back in uh back in 2020. 2020 yeah. <laughs> that's that's like the only thing I remember Chris Woodward as a manager for. <laughs> yeah. I think that's I think that's the only thing that anyone remembers, honestly. Yeah, that's completely fair. That's completely fair. Um, so yeah, like that's that's my thing with cycles is I think I think they're cool. Like they are cool when they end really well. Like obviously, aren't there two Rockies players with Arenado and Gonzalez who ended it on like a walk off home run or was it Gonzalez just did? Yeah. Uh, did Arenado complete a cycle on Father's? He did. Day? That was the Father's Day game. Yeah, it was. Like, it was. It was a walk off. Well, they both did walk off home runs to complete the cycle. Yeah, Which so like, like yeah, that adds another element of coolness to it, right? So that's cool. Ending it on a home run is cool. Ending it on a triple, which is arguably the most exciting play in baseball, is really really cool because that's you know ten seconds, or if you're Benji Molina, like twenty five seconds of of <laughs> just excitement, just you know waiting for waiting at the potential of them reaching third base. It's usually like there's not really a lot of stand up triples that happen in baseball. Like usually you have to dive in uh feet first or head first to to get that triple so when it ends like that yeah it's cool but ending yeah. it on a single it just doesn't have the same doesn't have the same bite to it really no it doesn't um so yeah i mean uh you know smash that like button go in the comments tell me what you think um anyone anyone listening um but yeah if if you if you disagree go ahead and comment if you agree um like the video and comment i don't know i don't know how this stuff how this stuff works but um but yeah anything more before we get into player of the highlight no let's let's talk about it all right now we will get into our tuesday august 22nd 2023 edition of how about that he's striking out less walking more and he's also making better contact turning into a strikeout machine just out of nowhere he's been excellent all around this year he is getting a so for my how about that today uh, i'm talking about a guy that i think has been very quietly been maybe the best bat in major league baseball for about three weeks now i'm talking about Kerry carpenter of the detroit tigers he's been kind of crushing the ball lately since august 2nd he is slashing 394 444 818 for a 1263 ops and a major league leading 245 weighted runs created plus uh, he is also tied for the major league lead in home runs in the span with eight. So, uh, yeah, lead, major league leader in home runs, major league leader in weighted runs created plus. Uh, during the span, 29.6% of his batted balls 
have been hard hit and in the sweet spot, which is a great combo. And that is the eighth highest ranking among the 67 hitters with at least 50 batted balls. And on that same list of 67, Kerry Carpenter ranks 11th in barrel rate with 14.8%, 11th in expected batting average with a 323, 7th in expected slugging with a 637, and a 9th in expected weighted on base average with a 429. And he has particularly crushed four-seamers, change-ups, and curveballs in this span. And I know that it seems like a very arbitrary list of pitches, but that's the most po- that's the most used fastball, the most used off-speed pitch, and the most used breaking ball uh, on that list, except maybe sliders are a little bit over curveballs, but it's pretty similar. And against those three pitches, he is a 455 batting average and, a four- and an 848 slugging. And both of those rank third among the 64 hitters with at least 225 batted balls against them. So Kerry Carpenter is hitting pretty much every pitch extremely well, uh, and he's hitting the ball hard as well, and he's making the right kind of contact. Kerry Carpenter. How about that? Yeah, Kerry Carpenter doing amazing. So, uh, so yeah, for my how about that, I was thinking like there there were two there were two guys that really stood out here in the past um, couple of weeks, and I I figured you would go with one of them, and you did. Uh, so I just went and nice. did both. I did both oh. uh, because, you know, I figured they're both on the same team. They're doing well. They're young guys that potentially are part of the future in Detroit, um, which are which is why I'm uh, highlighting both Spencer Torkelson and, as you highlighted, Kerry Carpenter. So I'll start with uh, I'll start with Kerry Carpenter because uh, I'm just uh, piggybacking off of you. Uh, yeah, in his last 16 games, hitting 410 with a 1323 OPS. Out of 179 qualified hitters, his average ranks fifth. On base percentage ranks sixth. Slugging and OPS both rank second. And he has the highest F war in all of baseball in his last 16 games. Uh, and out of 127 hitters with 200 plus pitches seen in the span, his expected slugging ranks sixth and expected Woba ranks 11th. Uh, his average exit velocity has gone from 90.3 miles per hour before the span to 91. 8 miles per hour in the span his sweet spot rate has gone from 34 percent to 45 percent i imagine also that hard hit sweet spot rate has seen a great increase as well as you mentioned that's one of the highest hard hard hit sweet spot rates uh in baseball and in total carrie carpenter has the fifth most batted balls in the sweet spot in the span along with that his barrel rate has gone from 10 percent to 16 percent and in total he has the fourth most barrels in this span uh, so Kerry Carpenter from both of us getting a how about that. And then also a guy who's been capturing the baseball world the past couple of weeks is Spencer Torkelson. Uh, if you don't know the significance of him breaking out, uh, it is a big deal because he's the first overall draft pick from 2020 and was a highly touted prospect. I think top 10 was also, was also a Chatham anglers legend, Chatham anglers legend and Obligatory a top 10 prospect league. for his entire minor league career. Um, so, so him breaking out is really nice for the Tigers in his last 12 games. He is hitting 395 with a 1537 OPS and out of 180, 1537, by the way, that's, I I meant to emphasize that more, but that's crazy. Uh, out of 185 qualified hitters, his on-base percentage ranks fifth and his slugging OPS weighted runs created plus and F war all rank first out of 120 hitters with 150 plus pitches seen in the span. Spencer Torkelson's expected slugging is the highest by 151 points and his expected Woba is the highest by 36 points. It is hard to have that wide of a margin when you're talking expected statistics, but Spencer Torkelson is doing just that. His sweet spot rate has gone from 34% before the span to 47% in the span. Along with that, Torkelson's fly ball rate has gone from 31% to 38% and his average exit velocity on fly balls has gone from 93.6 miles per hour to 101.6 miles per hour. The average fly ball that Torgelson is hitting is 101.6 miles per hour off the bat. And out of 46 hitters with 10 plus fly balls in this span, his average exit velocity on them is second highest. And uh, more, even more remarkably, his barrel rate has gone from 13% before this span, which is already good, to 31% in this span. Uh, almost a third of his batted balls are barrels, where the league average is about 8%. Out of 145 hitters with 50-plus batted balls in this span, Torkelson has the highest barrel rate. 
and he also has the most total barrels in the span never mind uh never mind percentages and uh it is the only 12 game span by a tiger 23 or younger with eight plus home runs and four plus doubles and it also it is also the only 12 game span by a tiger 23 or younger with eight plus home runs and six plus walks so spencer torkelson making some tiger history with how with how well he's doing at how young of an age he is at uh and really and really showing us why he was such a highly touted prospect and such a high draft pick he is getting a how about that um very nice all right so now we shall get uh into uh go from the highs to the lows where we're talking players and subjects that have been underperforming with our august 22nd 2023 edition of slightly alarming statistics He's been barreling up the ball way less. He's not missing bats. He's not getting the ball on the ground, and people are hitting it in the air more. It's been so bad. He is getting a... Slightly alarming. Yeah, so for my slightly alarming, another Cape League legend, shout out to the Brewster Whitecaps, uh, as I'm about to highlight how one of their previous players has been doing poorly. But uh, I'm talking about Reed Detmers of the Angels, and uh, he has not looked... I don't want to say like himself, because I feel like we still really haven't seen... Reed Detmers take the step up that we hoped he would this year, but it's been particularly bad over the last two months. Since the start of July, he is a 722 ERA and a 624 FIP in his last eight starts. Um, he doesn't even qualify for the for ERA at this span, and it's not because he doesn't have enough starts. It's because he hasn't, hasn't got enough innings uh, in the starts. Uh, throughout this span, 21.7% of his total pitches have been in game day zone 13, which is an outside and it's an inside and low pitch to right-handers and a low and outside pitch to lefties. 21% of all pitches he's thrown have been there. And that's the 11th highest rate among the 124 pitchers with at least 500 pitches thrown total. And looking most specifically into his four-seam fastball, that's his most used pitched. Uh, he, uh, sorry, uh, in the span, opponents are hitting 333 and slugging 794 against his fastball. That average ranks 12th worst, and his slugging ranks 4th worst among the 94 pitchers with at least 204 seamers thrown. Uh, I know I'm going out of order here, but going back to the uh, going back to the, the total pitches being in game day zone 13, he's only gotten a swing on 29.4% of those pitches. That is 3% below the major league average. Uh, so Reed Detmers, he's not been throwing strikes consistently, and when he does, he's getting tattooed, especially on his most used pitched. Yeah, Reed Detmers. Slightly alarming. Has had kind of quite the up and down, uh has had quite the up and down career thus far. You know, he's yeah. Granted, he's only 23 at this point, so um still figuring it out. But yeah, unfortunate. Especially at a time where the Angels really need success from their guys. Uh it is unfortunate that uh it has not been going well for him as as of late. Um my slightly alarming also has to do with the Angels. It is another subject. It is the Angels offense. Uh, it has been really silent for the entire month of August. Uh, the Angels offense in the month of August are hitting 212, a 607 OPS and 61 weighted runs created plus. Uh, they have the worst average on base percentage, third worst slugging and second worst OPS in the month of August. And uh, the Angels also have the worst expected batting average, expected slugging, and expected WOBA in August. Uh, their team walk rate has gone from 9.2% before before the span to 4.7% uh, in the month of August. And their team walk-to-strikeout ratio has gone from 0.38 to 0.17 uh, in the span. So their walk-to-strikeout rate has been cut by more than half in the month of August. And uh, they also, with that, just breaking down where they're at in each category, uh, the Angels have the third highest strikeout rate, the lowest walk rate, and the lowest walk-to-strikeout ratio in baseball this month. Uh, their chase rate has gone from 28% before this span to 36% in this span. Uh, they have the highest chase rate in baseball by 2.9 percentage points, and they also have the second highest whiff rate in the month of august uh along with that this month uh angels the angels have had nine hitters take 30 or more plate appearances and six of them have sub 600 ops's and seven of them 
have sub 80 weighted runs created pluses. So seven of the nine guys that they have thrown out there for, you know, thrown up to bat 30 or more times this month uh, are more than 20% below average, which is uh, like around around or below replacement, unfortunately. Uh, breaking it down individually, uh, Randall Gr- Gritchick, who they acquired via trade uh, pretty much right at the deadline, he is hitting 159 with a 483 OPS and 66 plate appearances for them this month. Uh, Hunter Renfro, who they acquired via trade in the offseason, uh, he is hitting 197 with a 546 OPS, 30% strikeout rate, and 3% walk rate in 64 plate appearances. Brandon Drury, another offseason addition, is hitting 233 with a 667 OPS, 27% strikeout rate, and zero walks in 60 plate appearances. And the worst of all is Mickey Moniak, who actually had some really high uh, praise and good numbers uh, leading up to this month. He is hitting 138 with a 377 OPS, negative 14 weighted runs created plus, 47% strikeout rate, and 2% walk rate in 59 plate appearances this month. So the Angels offense, unfortunately, as a whole, kind of in a critical time for the organization, is getting a slightly alarming. Um, And that will do it for players to highlight and subjects to highlight. And we shall get into a preview of the week ahead where I will be discussing the series to watch. Daniel will be looking at the day-by-day starting pitching matchups. Uh, As far as series to watch, Red Sox-Astros is a good one. Uh, The Red Sox are fighting for their playoff lives, uh, as we're probably going to discuss with Chris Cotillo here. Um, Or, excuse me, that we already discussed. We definitely did, yeah. Yeah, we definitely did. Um, So, uh... So yeah, and uh, the Astros are kind of like after their sweep against after getting swept by the Mariners are kind of also fighting for playoff lives. You know, they they're in a playoff spot right now, but they're not super far ahead of the rest of the pack right now. They're only, yeah, a game and a half up on the Blue Jays who are out of the playoff race. So um, this is an important series for them, too. Uh, Along with that, Phillies Giants, uh, both teams in the wild card spot. Giants have been kind of falling as as of late and need to pick it up if they want to keep that playoff spot right now. And the premier series to watch um, is between the, uh, you know, two AL East uh, foes in the Baltimore Orioles and Toronto Blue Jays. Orioles have been atop the division for uh, a good month now, or like, or yeah, almost a good month now. And the Blue Jays, meanwhile, or a game out in the wild card race, a very competitive wild card race, and they need to uh, keep winning games and win the hard games to potentially get that playoff spot. So check out Orioles Blue Jays uh, starting tonight. What do you got for the day by day starting pitching matchups? So tonight on Tuesdays, we're recording this. Uh, we have Kyle Harrison making his major league debut, one of the premier pitching prospects in baseball and the top prospect for the San Francisco Giants. He's going to be facing the Phillies tonight in Citizens Bank Park. You might want to watch that one because uh, it'll be very interesting. Uh, you will have uh, Yusei Kikuchi and Grayson Rodriguez facing each other in Blue Jays Orioles at Camden. Josiah Gray and Carlos Rodon facing each other in Nationals Yankees um, at Yankee Stadium. Bobby Miller will be facing the Cleveland Guardians tonight as Noah Syndergaard takes on his old team team that mm-hmm. traded him about three weeks ago. Ahmed Rosario will be making his return to Cleveland. That's fun. Uh, Tyler McGill and Bryce Elder will be will be facing off in Mets Braves. I almost just named it Cape Leaguer there by accident. Um, Tanner Houck and Justin Verlander will face each other in Red Sox Astros. That'll be in Minute Maid Park. Um, Bailey Ober and Wade Miley will face each other in Twins Brewers in Milwaukee. Graham Ashcraft and Lucas Giolito, two struggling pitchers looking to fix themselves, will go in Reds Angels at Angel Stadium. Jesus Lazardo and uh, Blake Snell will face each other in Marlins Padres in San Diego. And matchup of the night comes from Rangers Diamondbacks. It's John Gray versus Zach Allen. Yeah, solid. John Gray, a guy who uh, has pitched in Arizona before in the playoffs in a wild card game. So then on Wednesday, 
Uh, Matt Libertor will be facing the Pirates for the Cardinals. That's a 12-35 start in Pittsburgh. Uh, Jamison Tyone and Tarek Skubal will face each other in Cubs-Tigers. That's in Detroit. Uh, George Kirby and Michael Kopech will face each other in Mariners and White Sox. That is in Chicago. Kenta Maeda and Corbin Burns will face each other in Twins-Brewers. That is two teams that are geographically pretty close, and that's uh, in Milwaukee. Um Alex Cobb and Michael Lorenzen will face each other in Giants Phillies in Philly. Um, Sandy Alcantara will face the Padres for the Marlins in Petco. Aaron Savali will be facing the Rockies for the Rays. Ah, Chris left. Chris left the call. I'm just going to keep going. Um, Aaron Savali will be facing the uh, Rockies for the Rays in Tampa. Kevin Gosman and Jack Flaherty will face each other in uh, Blue Jays Orioles. That's going to be in Baltimore, like I mentioned. Mackenzie Gore will be facing the Yankees for the Nationals. He looked really good his last time out. Clayton Kershaw will be facing the Guardians for the Dodgers in Cleveland. Jose Quintana and Charlie Morton will face each other in Mets Braves. Chris Sale and Jose Urquidy will face each other in Red Sox Astros. And matchup of the afternoon comes from Reds Angels. It is Andrew Abbott versus Shohei Otani. This conversation. This conversation is over. Is over.
And that'll do it for this installment of Above Replacement Radio. We hope you enjoyed this one. If you are listening on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, uh, go check out the YouTube channel. It is called Above Replacement Radio. Subscribe to it. Check out all the digital content. Uh, Check out our shorts. Check out our playlist, the Baseball History Series. All our guest interviews, including our most recent one with Chris Cotillo. And before that, it was Mike Petriello. And uh, if you want to follow us on social media, follow me on X at Chris underscore Gianta and follow Daniel on both X and Instagram at Daniel underscore current and follow the show Instagram at above replacement radio for all the show needs. We hope you enjoyed this one and we hope to see you next time where we are talking all the happenings in major league baseball. Once again, see you then.